Russia is the only country in the world with an arsenal that could destroy the United States in minutes. That means we need to take Russia very seriously. Today on The Hot Dish, I will be talking with two experts about how to handle our relationship with Russia. This is a topic that's always been important, but it is especially timely now that Russia is in the headlines almost every day. We covered the select Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Investigation, U.S.-Russia broadly, and the Arctic um, in my conversation with Angus King. It's important to note that that conversation was held before the firing of FBI Director James Comey, and so some of that was not addressed because it uh, we did not yet know that uh, Director Comey would be fired. But I'm also very excited to welcome to the podcast Matthew Rojansky, uh, who's the director at the Kennan Institute and the Wilson Center. It's a leading think tank in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I first want to tell the folks that you also appeared in North Dakota. You're a California boy, so when I said we're going to Grand Forks, you said, I ain't going there in the winter. <laughs> <laughs> Some great beers in North Dakota. I was, I was well rewarded. But um, I think everybody truly enjoyed the presentation and, and enjoyed, um, you know, they, they said, man, you hang out with some smart people who know a lot of stuff. Um, the one thing I want folks to know is that um, Matt travels back and forth frequently to Russia. And so it gives you a, a continuity of what's happening in terms of trends. And so if you could kind of tell us, you know, when was the last time you were in Russia? How do you see trends changing um, uh, from from the last couple visits before that, is is everything pretty much the same way, or or do you see Russia reacting um, uh, to what's happening in the United States? Uh, well, uh, thanks so much, Senator Heitkamp, for for having me on the program, and thanks for uh, setting up this fantastic program that we did in Grand Forks. Uh, a great opportunity to connect with Americans who are interested and and really passionate about uh, the issue of U.S. Russia relations. Uh, let me just give the upfront disclaimer. Uh, I work for a congressionally chartered and, and uh, publicly funded memorial think tank, uh, the Wilson Center, memorial to President Wilson. Uh, and so we have a public service mission, which is to promote knowledge uh, and awareness about Russia and the wider world, of course. Um, but everything I'm going to talk about with you now is my personal views. So disclaimer out of the way. Terrific. Uh, and, uh, you know, look, I, I go quite frequently to Russia. Um, I, I came back uh, just over a week ago from my most recent trip. Before that, I was there at the end of uh, February, uh, and I'll be going again later this month. Um, so I have had a good chance to take a temperature check over uh, just a few months uh, since the election uh, and in the course of some of these major developments in the U.S.-Russia relationship. Um, but there's been a pretty high degree of consistency in what I hear from top Russians. And this goes for officials and what I'd call kind of quasi-official voices and then relatively independent voices. And they've all said, you know, some of this caricature that the Russians were just gleefully popping champagne after the U.S. election is really just that. It's sort of caricature, propaganda, exaggeration, and it serves certain purposes domestically. Um, but most serious Russians uh, have been of the same mind all along. 
along, which is they're maybe cautiously optimistic that we can clear the air of some of the negativity that had built up uh, by the end of the last administration with Russia, just because you have a changing of the guard. And that's that's actually one of the great things about our democracy is a chance to reset things. Um, but they basically they had very low expectations. Uh, and the impression I got from this latest visit, they were very clear on this. They're basically complacent with a low state of U.S.-Russia relations to the extent that it serves Russia's domestic purposes, which is Putin's re-election campaign. Uh, that'll be March of 2018, so less than a year from now. You know, your your listeners would be right to think, what, Putin, election, obviously it's not going to be free and fair. No, it's not. But he has still got to turn people out. He's got to energize and mobilize his base. And he has to go through the motions in a way that's credible enough with people that you don't get tens or hundreds of thousands of people protesting an illegitimate election, which is his big nightmare, that there would be a popular revolution. And so the way that the U.S.-Russia relationship plays into this is good U.S.-Russia relations you know, don't sell votes. Bad U.S.-Russia relations, a threat from America where Vladimir Putin is the only man who can protect Russians from scary America that wants to run the table in the post-Soviet space, that wants to change regimes in the Middle East and unleash terrorism that will kill Russians. That's a fabulous political narrative. Remember, there was a terrorist attack in St. Petersburg just a few weeks ago. This, this works very well. I think it's beyond even discussion. Russia tried to meddle in our election. I don't think anyone disagrees with that. What people don't understand is why did he pick Trump and not Clinton? What is it in that Clinton-Putin relationship that um, made him, uh, you know, favor, at least in the, in the work that was done to meddle in the election, favor Trump? So the, the intelligence community report from December uh, said – with a, a certain degree of confidence, I can't remember what exactly that, uh, that Putin sought to intervene with a preference for Trump. Uh, if that was true, uh, and you wanted to explain that from the Russian perspective, I think it's pretty easy, which is that uh, Trump campaigned saying that he wanted to improve U.S.-Russia relations. Uh, Hillary campaigned saying that our number one enemy was Vladimir Putin, you know, more or less. Um, and uh, there's a kind of famously... Um, totally apocryphal, but still famously damaging story that Hillary Clinton was the was the architect of this protest movement called the White Protests in 2011 and 12. They just adopted the color white for for whatever reason uh, against Putin when he sought to come back to the presidency uh, for a third term, and uh, and so there was a lot of bad blood between the two of them. Now, all of that said. Uh, I think, you know, the notion that the Russians, A, could successfully pick a winner or a loser in American election is, is probably not realistic. Uh, B, I think there's been a huge amount of blowback from anything that they did or even the notion that they would have done something. Uh, and C, they're going on with intervention and meddling in Western democracies um, without necessarily having, in, including ours, I think, uh, you still see Russian propaganda media trolling information operations, uh, hacking uh, WikiLeaks, which, which seems to be a Russian front by every indication, mm -hmm. all still very active, and in European elections. And they're doing this, I think, even despite the pretty clear uh, evidence that it has a lot of blowback and it doesn't work. So you ask a natural question, why? Yeah. Why would they do this? Um, look at the French election. They lost massively, right? If, in fact, Le Pen was the preferred Russian candidate. 
my sense is that the biggest benefit from for Russia is actually stoking deep divisions and dysfunctions within Western democracies, because the most powerful feature of the West uh, since the Cold War has been our unity, has been that we build these institutions and these alliances, uh, which bring, you know, from many, one, mm -hmm. e pluribus unum, right, uh, that brings strengths together. Uh, when the Russians can divide us, we are distracted. Right. We are less effective. Uh, and I, I think, you know, and, and why do they want to do that? Because for them, the game's not American politics. Look, this isn't the Cold War. They don't want us to have a Bolshevik revolution. They don't care what system of government we have. They care that we're not paying attention to the post-Soviet space, mm -hmm. Ukraine, Georgia, Central Asia, that we're not paying attention to the Middle East so that they can operate with a free hand. But but it seemed interesting. Yesterday, um, the president welcomed uh, two uh, highly positioned Russians into the Oval Office. And um, on, on exit, um, the foreign uh, minister was asked about um, the firing of Comey. And he seemed to make light of it and kind of laugh at it. And I thought, he's enjoying this. He's enjoying the, 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 um, the kind of disruption that we're having here. And, and, and so, you know, it, it may be just poking us a little bit, too, and, and watching to see what comes. And, and I think we have to be greatly concerned, um, mainly because one of the facts that uh, is frequently talked about is the attempt to hack into voter databases. I mean, it's one thing we can inoculate ourselves against fake news, and against, you know, crazy stories by telling people the truth and by making sure people have the right amount of uh, skepticism when they read what whatever they're going to read on the Internet. But it's going to be really hard if they um, somehow make uh, 15,000 registrations disappear. And that's one of the big concerns because it seems clear that they attempted to hack into state databases. Look, I, uh, I, I want to address this point, too, about Lavrov or yeah. even Putin sort of being almost gleeful about the chaos. They seem pretty they... cheery. Yeah. So uh, some of that, I think, is, is probably just it's true. I mean, they, they are sort of enjoying the shoe is on the other foot. You know, we, we are having problems uh, that they may or may not have helped deliver. Uh, but if I learned, you know, two really important lessons uh, that, that seem to apply awfully well in my professional life from my mom and dad, mm -hmm. uh, it's number one, um, look, no matter what, you always treat people with respect. Um, so on our side or on their side, but there's just no reason to do this, you know, ad hominem stuff to belittle each other, to demonize each other. Just always treat the other guy with respect. There's no percentage in it to do otherwise. Mm -hmm. That's just good diplomacy. But number two is if you're going to hit back, hit hard. You know, make sure that your response is a real deterrent, that it stands the test of time and that it sends a message both to the guy that hit you this last time, but to anybody else who's watching and might think about hitting you again. You're not someone to be messed with. And so I think both of those rules would probably serve us pretty well in our response now to what the Russians have done. I don't think it, it helps us to sink to their level in terms of propaganda, uh, demonization of personalities, you know, um, sort of talk to the hand, we're not going to meet with you, that sort of thing. It's a nuclear power. We've got to talk to each other. Uh, but at the same time, when they need to be deterred, we need to deter them in a way that is not ambiguous. That is sort of, well, are the sanctions effective or not, you know, not effective? We need to turn them in a way that is unacceptable to them. My question is, um, first, your impressions of, uh, of Putin, I think in past conversations you said, don't think of him as an autocrat or, 
or a, a dictator, you got to think of him like the czar, the czar yeah. of Russia. And I yeah. think that's a really important distinction, and it would be great if you'd elaborate <clears throat> for the folks at home. Well, so uh, I think Putin is, is many things. Uh, he, he certainly is autocratic and dictatorial in, in much of what he does. But uh, the Tsar throughout Russian history was called the Little Father. God is the Big Father. The Tsar is the Little Father. There is something that transcends any one man, any one institutional identity, like, for example, being KGB. Uh, a lot of Americans and Westerners are dismissive of Putin as the little KGB colonel, right? Just the little thug. Um, he may have been that when he came to power. He's much more than that now. Uh, he is not solely loyal to KGB interests. He, in fact, balances the so-called siloviks, the, the power people in government, with the technocrats, you know, with the reformers, because he's got to have people with technical skills, too, to manage the economy, which he's done pretty successfully, uh, to attract foreign investment, which is difficult under sanctions, but which he still does. Uh, and, and then he even has a rising generation. And this is fascinating to watch. You would think... Uh, like with the Soviet Union, just be patient long enough, the system will collapse. What's interesting is to see the degree to which young Russians, and we just had a presentation on this from a visiting Russian scholar, young Russians desire to become bureaucrats in the Putin system. They view that as a stable, desirable, prestigious future life. Mm -hmm. So this is a guy who draws on all these different forces within the Russian elite. You mean when you look at the next... Um 12 months or the, the time leading up to certainly the election, what challenges do you think we're going to have in this relationship beyond our going in, ongoing investigation and what I think is going to reveal additional information regarding um, uh, the election? We'll wait and see. I think, Matthew, you're a little less uh, – you're, you're, you're a little um, more skeptical than I am about um, whether, whether we're going to see some additional facts – um, revealed, but you know, never mind that. What what are we going to see in the region? What what do you think um, Putin is thinking about doing um, that will get him the attention that will drive up his vote count and suppress or uh, suppress any kind of um, protest during the election? So you know, look, my my. By the way, my view on the uh, the investigation is uh, it's going to happen. It is happening, and. Uh, you know, the challenge here is to walk and chew gum at the same time. We can't not have a U.S.-Russia relationship while we figure out what was done to our democracy. So uh, I think uh, the visit of Lavrov is a perfect illustration. The guy comes to Washington exactly while, you know, Washington's up in arms about the Comey issue, right? It's a great test for us. It's also a great lesson. We've just got to learn. To, this is this is our new reality. We've got to learn to, to to do effective foreign policy in this context. So what what might that be? Given what might be coming down the pike, uh, I would look to the the crises we know and the crises we probably don't know. The crises we know: Ukraine, Syria. Uh, we know that there's going to be uh, a military exercise. This happens every four years, uh, but this is the first time it's happening post Ukraine. Uh, in the Russian Western Military District. And it's just what you would think. It's the district that borders on NATO. They're going to turn out like 100,000 soldiers and tanks. They may simulate a nuclear strike. We're going to have some very, very nervous NATO allies. But we know that this is coming. 
So one of the hard things, but something we have to do, is to make the American public and the media more broadly aware that this is something that will happen, that it doesn't necessarily mean the beginning of World War III. We don't necessarily want a kind of public panic. We don't want uh, little, small uh, provocations by either side in the region. And remember, we have some, some NATO allies that are very vulnerable, that are very understandably afraid uh, to expand into something that becomes essentially a, you know, a conflict between nuclear powers. So we've got to manage the, the crises that we know about that we can predict. Mm -hmm. And then there are the ones that we can't predict. You know, you have uh, aged leaders in the post-Soviet space, for instance, in Kazakhstan, uh, you know, who don't necessarily have a clear succession plan in place. That's a country that Putin has said is not a real country. It's the same thing he said about Ukraine, and then he invaded Ukraine. Mm -hmm. uh, we should be concerned about those things that we can't predict. The fact that uh, Belarus, which is uh, Russia's closest ally, it is between Russia and NATO, is a country that's been swinging very much back towards the West. Uh, Lukashenko, the dictator in Belarus, plays this game over many years. That's another place where anything could happen, and a crisis could very quickly draw in a nuclear-armed NATO alliance and a nuclear-armed Russia. Well, I mean, all of these things, I think, um, uh, you know, we, we look at the region, the best thing that we can do is understand the motivation of leaders and motivation of countries and, and not overstate um, uh, their objectives. And, and when, you, when you look at Russia, it seems clear that the first order of the day is to reestablish the sphere of influence that they had in the past when they were, in fact, a USSR. And then who knows what happens beyond that. Um, I want to ask just a real quick question because North Dakota, as you know, is the second largest oil producing state in the in the union. Um, and, you know, we're, we're blessed with a great resource. Um, obviously, Russia's economy is is very um, centered on what they can produce in terms of oil and gas. How do you see the decline in oil and gas prices um, relative to Russia's ability to um, continue to uh, dominate or, or to invest in military and, and invest in their economy? So uh, you, I know, understand this, Senator, uh, as does your fantastic team. Uh, but I want North Dakotans and Americans to understand the role that uh, non-conventional uh, oil and gas resources have played in transforming the geopolitical picture for the United States and Russia, making the United States either currently or potentially, depending on whether you're talking about oil or gas, the single biggest exporter of these commodities, cannot be overstated. It is transformative. Uh, not only is Putin quaking in his boots and drawing pictures on napkins to explain why that this is unsustainable, you know, this is wishful thinking on uh, his uh, part. It, that our, our exactly. um, shale is exactly. unsustainable. I mean, be, and the reason is because the Russians didn't do their homework. They depended on being able to export high-priced commodities, especially energy, indefinitely. And they didn't restructure their economy. And they didn't build an information economy or a 21st century economy. And for that reason, when energy prices are low for a sustained period of time, Russia is in really serious crisis. The one cautionary note here is, this is like Mark Twain saying, rumors of my demise are greatly <laughs> exaggerated. If your policy is expecting the Putin system to collapse this year, next year, when oil prices hit $30 a barrel, that's not a good policy because mm -hmm. guess what? It's been 15 years and it ain't happened yet. Yeah. Well, I, I will tell you this. Um, 
coupled, you know, our our huge um, opportunity here, coupled with now the ability to export and the ability to compete. You know, I was in Japan, and, and um, they all came up to me because they knew about the work that I had done to open up oil, for oil exports, and mm-hmm. they were just like, this right. is transformative. They, they feel like they have a trusted ally who can be an energy supplier, and they don't have to... Um, they don't have to uh, go on on bended knee and make sure that their economy is going to run by buying Russian energy. And so we we, we we're we're greatly um, uh, uh, proud of the work that we do, not only in energy security in this country, but also energy security with our allies. Um, we only have time for one more question. I could talk all day about this. Um, I think I think the one. The one thing that has bothered me since I've been here, and it's been a trend, I think, in the last uh, 10, 15 years, um, is politics ends at the water's edge, Mm -hmm. except recently. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering how we get back to a nonpartisan, not bipartisan, Mm -hmm. but nonpartisan relationship in in the United States response. I mean, how how dangerous do you think it is that we are so hyper-partisan and people can drive a wedge between us as we try and um, do the things that we need to do for our security, but also the security of our allies. You know, it's it's fitting that that we close on that question because my first uh, sort of significant foreign policy job in Washington was running an NGO called the Partnership for a Secure America, which still exists. It was created by Lee Hamilton, a former mm-hmm. Democratic member of Congress, and Warren Rudman, Republican member of the Senate after the 9-11 Commission. And you know what? It turned out that when you got together a lot of senior, very credible, widely respected leaders from both sides of the aisle, and you presented in a fact-based way a whole host of national security issues post-9-11, you know, whether we should uh, uh, pay our UN dues, you know, does the UN do anything? Yes, it's got to be reformed, but what are the useful things that it does? You know, whether we should look to fix U.S.-Russia relations, uh, whether we should support non-proliferation treaties and organizations that that prevent proliferation of nuclear weapons. There was enormous bipartisan, overwhelming bipartisan consensus. The devil's in the details. I would say what we need most of all uh, right now today uh, is to sort of bring back the the sense of urgency that whether we have an effective and competitive political system in our country uh, is a question of national security for the United States. It is not just a good, nice to have. It is a need to have. Mm-hmm. This isn't the Cold War. There is not a big, big, bad Bolshevik enemy. But there are competing ideas out there. And part of the whole WikiLeaks information warfare attack on our democracy is saying our democracy doesn't work. If we want to prove that our democracy works, we can't just say that it works. <laughs> we have to show that it works. And I think overcoming the kind of very bitter, destructive partisanship is probably a big part of that. Well, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, I'd love to ask you questions about what you think um, Russia's role is in North Korea. And, I mean, maybe sometime you can come back. Um, um, you, you really impressed so many of the folks that met you. Um, you're one of the one of the go-to guys in this town, and I've really appreciated getting to know you and sharing what you know um, uh, with my with my constituents in North Dakota. Thanks Thank so much, Matthew. Thanks. I want to welcome a great friend of mine, Angus King, to The Hot Dish. He is an independent senator from Maine and a dear, dear friend. Mainly, I like his wife a lot. He, I tolerate because it means I get to hang out with Mary. 
He is also a member of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, uh, which is currently really the lead committee in the United States Congress, uh, spearheading a bipartisan investigation into Russia's efforts um, meddling in the 2016 election. I, I want to thank you so much, Angus, for coming on and updating our listeners on what's happening with the investigation. I think the first thing that comes to mind is lots of calls for an independent investigation. You know, what, what's your read? Can we, do you think an independent investigation could do it any faster or we'd get a different conclusion from an independent investigation? I think the answer is probably no to both questions. Um, the first is, is I understand completely people saying we want an independent investigation. I, I, that makes total sense. The problem is there, there are several. Number one, to set up a so-called independent investigation, you'd have to have some kind of charter or statute that defined who got to appoint the people. And it's likely if it was a bill that went through Congress, the president would have to have appointments to this commission. You'd have the two parties. It would be it would have a weight toward the Republicans since they control both houses of Congress and the presidency. So you'd end up with some kind of of bipartisan or nonpartisan commission, but it would still go have to go through that process. Secondly, uh, they'd have to start all over on things like security clearances for staff assembling the documents. I would say it would probably add six to eight months to get where we are uh, today. The Senate Intelligence Committee is a carefully balanced committee. It's eight to seven. It's eight Republicans, six Democrats, and me. And so that means that if one Republican switches, it's eight to seven the other way. In, in other words, it's it's not like it's a huge majority one way or the other. And the members are uh, people that take this work very seriously, and it's work that we've been doing right along in working with the intelligence community. So I can't guarantee results, but we're certainly working hard to keep it bipartisan and to move forward. Well, I think the question people have is, why do we need all of this talk, and what do we know so far, and what can you tell us um, that isn't classified about the work that the committee's doing? Well, we need it because I think this is the most direct attack on our democracy in the history of this country. And uh, it's particularly important because it ain't going to be the only time. This wasn't one off. This is a pattern that the Russians are embarking upon all over the world. We just finished the election in France where they were very deeply involved. It looked like there was a, a hacking of the uh, moderate candidate a few hours before the election. Documents were released. False stories were released. The whole pattern that we saw here, they're doing it. They've been doing it in Eastern Europe for years. And so uh, we can't just stand idly by and wait for him to do it again in 2018 or 2020. So here's what we know. Uh, and th this is pretty straightforward, and I'm not revealing any classified information. We know that the Russians had a very sophisticated uh, attempt to uh, tamper and, and interfere with our election, our presidential election in 2016. We know that it was ordered from the highest levels of the Russian government. That means Mr. Putin. Uh, we know that at least as of the summer of 2016 through the election, they decided to help Mr. Trump, although you can argue whether they were trying to hurt Hillary Clinton or help Donald mm -hmm. Trump. But either way, that was the tilt of what they were doing. We also know something that hasn't gotten much publicity that really worries me. They tried to get into state election systems. Uh, registration rolls and that kind of thing. Imagine the chaos if people went in and their names had disappeared off the registration rolls. As near as we can tell, 
it wasn't successful. But it really bothers me that they were doing this because they weren't doing it for fun. Mm -hmm. They're going to come back and try to do this. And for that reason, we've really got to be thinking about how we protect the integrity of our elections. For example, always have a paper backup. No voting machines that are strictly touch screens on a computer. Uh, that's very dangerous. Always have a paper backup. Have no voting machines connected to the Internet. There's, those are the kinds of things that we're learning. The piece that we don't know yet is whether there was some cooperation, the word they're using is collusion, between the Trump campaign and the Russians. That is the, the, the real focus of the investigation. We're reading and gathering thousands of pages of documents, of intelligence documents. We're going to be uh, talking to a very large number of witnesses. Uh, eventually, we'll be having a series. Well, we, we know we're going to have a series of hearings. We've already had one major hearing, uh, both open and closed, as many open as we can. Uh, so that's really the, the three pieces are the hacking and the interference in the election. Did the Russians do it? Yes, we know that. Did they try to get into our, some of our state election systems? Yes, we know they tried to did that, do that. The third piece is the controversial, difficult piece. Was there cooperation? And that's yet to be determined. Well, let's go back to the state hack. Um, one of the things that I think everybody should be concerned about is as you're moving ahead with this investigation, if we don't get results by the time that states are putting together their election plans, are we are we just leaving ourselves wide open to this kind of hack? Um, what are we doing, you know, kind of with the state election officials and with the county auditors, the people who run elections, to educate them on what they need to be looking for and how they need to inoculate their systems from this kind of attack? Well, I think that's something that doesn't need to wait until the final report of this of this uh, investigation because it's something we know uh, and we know it happened. And there, there are lots of people in this country that are concerned about this and were before this incident. So we're going to be working on that as a kind of a side report. It may be that we issue it by itself. Uh, but as I said, a couple of things are really clear. Always have a paper backup. In my town, you fill out a paper ballot and make your little marks like on the uh, on the old uh, uh, yeah, college SAT, boards. Yeah. yeah. And you put it in a machine. The machine counts it. But if there's something goes awry with the machine, you've always got those pieces of paper. The other piece is never under any circumstances have a election of a, a, a voting machine that's connected in any way, shape, or form to the internet, but experts will tell you that's that's not even enough protection. Uh, the paper backup and some kind of uh, insulation of voting machines is, is part of it. So we're going to keep we're going to work with the with the communities. The 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 bad news is our or the good news is our election system is is very dispersed and all over the country in every county and every city. Uh, so it's very hard to hack. On the other hand. It could be hacked in certain precincts, certain cities, and imagine the chaos if we learned a few days after the election in November that a couple of hundred thousand votes had been changed in uh, Wisconsin and Michigan. Uh, mm -hmm. We'd had a constitutional crisis. And as I said, the fact that they did it or they tried to do it, it, it appears that they weren't successful, but they, they tried to do it in 2016 – tells me they're going to be back. And uh, shame on us if we're not ready. Well, let's let's get back to kind of, uh, I don't know if you were able to watch the hearing this week um, with uh, at uh, the Judiciary Subcommittee and the presentations from uh, former Attorney General Sally Yates and, 
and uh, former director of intelligence, uh, Clapper. Um, but it, it certainly appears that that concerns were raised about members not only of the campaign team, but in the case of Michael Flynn, um, General Flynn, concerns raised about a member of, you know, in a very, very strategic and important position that were not really listened to in a way that we would expect that they should be listened to. Uh, one of the concerns that I have is, is do you think that um, this threat has now been elevated in the White House to the point where they would react differently today if they receive that kind of information about another member of their administration? I think it would. And I don't, I don't want to make excuses because I think the the level of warning that they got was pretty serious and it shouldn't have taken 18 days to react to it. Uh, on the other hand, that whole group had only been in office for literally one week. Uh, the council, the president, the, the, the whole, it was a brand new uh, situation. And um, this was pretty uh, powerful information. But even with that, uh, I, I believe anyway that somebody should have reacted. The The, the important part of that was um, that you had a national security advisor who was subject to blackmail, or at least that's what it appears. That's what Sally Yates testified, and that's what she told the White House. Um, and that's by definition about as dangerous a situation in the national security realm as you can get. Yeah, it, it's it's kind of amazing to me, and I think it's it's once again that example of our hyperpartisanship that things could be dismissed that needed to be paid attention to. Even the, President Obama saying you've got to be careful with this guy was just perceived to be sour grapes and not a legitimate you know, one-on-one discussion. And so I I hope that those are some of the lessons that we're learning that, you know, put part, you know, our national security should not be subject to political um, kind of lenses. Well, the the old saying when you and I were kids was politics stops at the, at the water's edge. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't, isn't the case anymore. Uh, but, you know, if if I were in the White House and this story is going to dog them for some time, I would want to get it over with as soon as possible and get all the information out. My experience in this kind of thing in, in politics is uh, hiding stuff never works. It always comes out in the end. And the longer you try to hide it, the worse it gets. And to the extent they can uh, fully cooperate, say, look, here are all the documents. You can have access to everybody. If they don't have anything to hide, then uh, getting this behind them quickly, I think, would be a real plus for the administration. I, one of the one of the things that I think people are so curious about um, is, uh, you know, we went through the Cold War, as you said, when we were kids. You were a kid a lot earlier than I was a kid. Yes, thank I just you want for to that. point that out. <laughs> <laughs> but when we were kids, you know, our big, I mean, we were in the Cold War. And right. Russia, or at that time, the Soviet Union, a USSR, was the gravest threat. We understood what someone who was armed to the teeth with nuclear weapons could do to our country. We were preparing for that kind of uh, that level of attack in terms of readiness, fallout shelters, the whole the whole kind of awareness. And then we have the the amazing event where the Berlin Wall came down and we saw Russia dissipate as, as you know. And, that... and, and everybody thought that was the right, end of the conflict. Right. In fact, a guy wrote a book called The End of History, that everything else, had, everything had happened at that point. Oh, my goodness. Well, that, yeah, he probably doesn't want his name known. <laughs> but but my, my point would be when you, when you look at our kind of um, uh, 
view of Russia. It's that, you know, kind of backwards country, cold, um, not much going on except for energy, full of mobsters, bad leader. But we didn't really see them as aggressive the way they've been aggressive in the Baltics, the way they've oh. been aggressive in Crimea, the way they've been aggressive in, in the Arctic. And, and I think it is a huge mistake to ignore that they are using every tool in their influence and, and possible to them to influence the West and to basically bring the West down. Well, one of the huge mistakes in American foreign policy, I think, and you can take this back to Vietnam and current situations that we're in is a failure to understand other people and other people's cultures and history. You can't understand Putin unless you understand Frederick the Great and you understand Napoleon marching on Moscow and Hitler invading Russia. Uh, Russian leaders for 500 years have been paranoid about encroachment from the West. So that's got to be, that's in that mentality. And Putin is basically trying to reconstruct in many ways the Soviet empire. And he's th- threatened by anything going on, you know, when countries in the, in Eastern Europe are joining NATO. He he sees that as aggression against him. What he's done is, is actually uh, quite amazing. I said in a hearing last week, he's played a weak hand very well. Their economy is sinking. They really are not doing well. The price of oil down really hurts them. Uh, but they've got this whole uh, cyber war undermining institutions, sowing doubt, uh, and they're really uh, good at it. And it's cheap. I mean, you know, they've really upset this country without firing a shot. Uh, and it's a, it is a, we had a hearing, this is a history going back into the 30s. The Soviet Union had this kind of disinformation uh, whole deal. And, you know, we, there, I, I don't want to give away any classified information, but they had a lot of people writing fake news stories and distributing them and figuring out how to get them onto Facebook in such a way that they would look believable. And uh, uh, you're absolutely right. Russia has found a way to destabilize the West and attack us uh, without triggering uh, a uh, declaration of war or, you know, response by a bomber. One of the things that I talk about is, uh, and I know you'll appreciate this, that um, what, if you think, well, how can we inoculate ourselves from that kind of attack? I think Russia attacked us at our most vulnerable spot, which is our hyper-partisanship. You know, no matter what anyone says about and, anyone And else. our free press and, yeah. and, and First Amendment, yeah. they, because yeah. we don't but, like to stifle speech. Right. But, but, you know, they say, you know, no matter what someone says, if I don't like that person, I'm going to believe it on the Internet as opposed to using critical thinking. And so at the end of the day, people say, how can we prevent this from happening? I would say you need to be a cynic about what you read and hear on all sides. And you need to really apply some critical thinking because some of the stuff that was pumped out by this uh, Russian organization was, I mean, ludicrous that anyone would believe it, but people did. Well, two things. Uh, One is it's really important to emphasize this is not a partisan issue. Putin is not a Republican and he's not a Democrat. He's an opportunist. And several members of our committee, most notably Susan Collins and Marco Rubio, get this. I can hear Rubio in committee saying, look, folks, next time this could be us. 
this isn't this is he's going to go they're going to go and they're going to start going after individual congressmen and senators that they don't like yeah. and planting fake stories this they do this around the world so the 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 this is in the context of the election of Donald Trump but it's important for everyone to understand republicans and democrats and independents that this is an assault on democracy itself and while this time it appears to have worked in favor of the republicans next time uh, it could very well uh, be going in the opposite way. The other thing you said that's really important, and I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I've I spent some time in Eastern Europe uh, last year in in Poland and the Ukraine, and then later on met with people here from Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia, and they do that. They deal with this all the time. I mean, the, the first thing when we got to Poland was, you know, the Russians are going to try to screw up your election. We this was in March. They said, we said, oh yeah, sure. Well, it turns out they were at it right then. Um, so I asked, I said, how do you defend yourself? You can't turn off the TV stations. You can't shut down the Internet. How do you defend themselves? What they said was really interesting, and it's what you suggested. They said the best defense is for the people to know it's happening. Mm-hmm. And then they can say, oh, it's just the Russians again. Yeah. And we need to be more sophisticated. I, I call it digital literacy. Uh, Mary has a uh, – we have a sign on our wall in our kitchen that says the problem with quotes on the internet is that it's difficult to tell whether they're authentic. Abraham Lincoln. Oh. <laughs> and, and that's we, very clever. Well, and, but that's the deal. And, and, you know, we all grew up at a time where you read something in print and you yeah. know that there had been editors and fact checkers and all of that. And now it's on the internet and it's some guy in his basement or more likely in a, in a basement in Macedonia or, or, or uh, somewhere in Russia. Uh, and we've got to be more sophisticated uh, consumers of, of news. We've got to ask, is this, does this make sense? Is this really true? We've got to go to Snopes.com and, and determine whether there's a factual basis for it. We're too, we're too gullible sometimes. Mm-hmm. I, 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 I think uh, uh, some citizens yesterday, I was giving a speech and they asked me about, you know, they were fearful. They said, what is happening? What, what do we need to do? And I said, look, we are the strongest democracy in the world. We have a document that is a miracle, um, which is the United States Constitution, and it survived this many 200-plus years, um, giving us the freest uh, government in the history of the world. And I said, and it's bigger than one man, and it's bigger than, than this, but we need you to be good citizens. That's the most important job there is in a democracy is citizens. Well, and those citizens need to be more cynical and they need to step up. When someone, you know, at the local coffee shop said, did you read about, you know, Hillary Clinton doing X or Y or, or Donald Trump doing X, Y, they need to say, how do you know that? Right. How do you know that's true? Well, I, I, I don't go quite as far as cynical. How about skeptical? Can we do? Can we be skeptical? And <laughs> cynical implies that you're sort of given up on anybody. But <laughs> but, but uh, I understand what you mean. The other thing, though, you mentioned Heidi was the the hyper partisan situation we have in the country, and that makes us vulnerable to this because people believe what they want to believe. Mm-hmm. I I got to tell you, we've got to start listening to each other better. The people who voted for Hillary have got to start listening to the 60 million people that voted for Donald Trump because they had something on their minds and vice versa. I remember the day or two before the election when everybody thought Hillary was going to win saying uh, to Mary and some friends, boy, if Hillary wins this thing, she's going to have to do some serious listening because there's something going on out there. Well, she didn't win. 
the, the Trump people have to do it, but it has to work both ways. We have to start talking to each other and understanding uh, why people voted for Donald Trump or why they voted for Hillary and, and how do we how do we get back to a place where uh, you know we're all Americans? I loved Barack Obama the day after the election said, remind remember everybody this is a, this is an intramural game. Mm-hmm. And we need to think about it in that way and not not allow people to to peel us off and to demonize the other side. Yeah, I think it's become uh, fashionable and almost um, uh, that the, the level of tolerance for the vitriol is absolutely astounding to me. Yeah. And, you know, it's like every time someone says something that's outrageous, it's like that lowers our um, our kind of sensitivity. It numbs us. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I, I, you know, I just keep saying, look, the best way we can uh, uh, kind of move on from this is to recognize that facts are facts. There are things that, you know, no one should dispute. And we should make people accountable when they don't tell facts yep. that are correct. But beyond that, respect each other's opinions. And, I, it, and it's you just don't have incredible to, yeah, to me that my, that doesn't happen. More. My dad used to say you can disagree without being disagreeable. Yeah. And uh, you don't have to yell at people and you don't have to, as I say, demonize them. Um, and it, it really is uh, – a friend of mine the other day used a wonderful term. He said we need more eloquent listening. Yeah. Isn't that a great term? Well, eloquent it, listening. It, it absolutely is. And, and I think, you know, you might say what does that have to do with Russia? And I would say everything. Our ability – to resist that kind of intrusion, you know, we're going to. We obviously we need to worry about what they, is happening. They state planted database. seeds in the soil of partisanship. Yep, I I don't have any doubt about it. Well, listen, Angus. Um, one last question because we share something other than um, a great love for your wife, who's a wonderful <laughs> woman. We share a northern border, and you and I have done a lot of work on the northern border in terms of security. But one of the things that um, I've been particularly interested in is what is happening in the Arctic and how the Arctic is opening up and how that changes kind of the geopolitical dynamics with Russia as well as with Canada, our neighbor to the north. Um, what kind of things are you guys doing in Maine as as you look at that northern border now extending up through our sure. neighbors, Canada? And how do you see kind of um, uh, a, a need for greater collaboration? Well, we we see it as <clears throat> as good news and bad news. I mean, it's bad news. What's is what happening? What's happening to the climate and what's likely to happen with sea level rise? And the Arctic is is the sort of canary in the coal mine. On the other hand, we see it as an opportunity because. The uh, the trip by sea from Asia to Europe or to the eastern U.S. is, I don't know, 14 days shorter if you go the northern route if the ice is out. So we see economic opportunity for a port state. If you Once you go through the Arctic, the first ports on the east coast of the United States are in Maine. Uh, so we're building up our port infrastructure in anticipation of that. But it's, um, it's extraordinary what's going on up there. And you mentioned national security. It's the, the way to think of it is it's as if we were just discovering the Mediterranean Sea. <laughs> this is a body yeah. of water that's huge. It's bordered by 12 or 15 countries, uh, and it's never been opened before in human history. So all of a sudden, there are all these issues of navigation rights and energy development and native peoples that live up there and national security and all of those. It's, it's a very... Uh, 
both it's a great opportunity, but it's also full of risks. So far, by and large, it's been it's the development and the work has been uh, cooperative. This is one where the Russians we're we're working with the Russians, and in fact, this week uh, in uh, Alaska is a. A changeover of, of of authority from the United States to Finland over something called uh, the Arctic Council, okay. uh, which is government to government, uh, and uh, Secretary Tillerson will be there. Lavrov will be there from Russia. I mean, it's a big deal, um, and so we've really got to work hard to keep it cooperative and not let it become a military confrontation area. Yeah. But we have to also recognize that um, we now have an additional border um, beyond Alaska um, that that we have to be very concerned about. And we have to work collaboratively with our friends to the north. Three years ago, I I had the extraordinary experience of going uh, to the Arctic Ocean under the ice in a uh, a, uh, a United States Navy submarine. Uh, And we crashed up through the ice when when our voyage was was done. It was just we were just on it for about 24 hours, but we were under the ice about 500 feet. And then came up back back through it. It's uh, it's an amazing amazing region with uh, with uh, resources, and it's very important for transit. And um, but as I say, it's it's both an opportunity and a challenge to develop it peacefully and without yeah. confrontation. Well, People have not been very good at that throughout history. Maybe this time we can pull it off. Well, and one of the big challenges we have is law of the sea, which we've never ratified. That which is a huge mistake. Yeah. Well, it's, I, it's, I, it's, I, it's shooting ourselves in the foot all over the world. Yeah. So it's it's not something that people really think about in North Dakota, but it could be critical in terms of uh, managing and and continued collaboration in the Arctic. So, my friend, we've come to the end. You've been incredibly generous with your time, and um, uh, I think. I think I feel better and sleep better at night knowing that you're on the Intel Committee and that we have um, someone who is not going to put on a partisan lens and look at things, but somebody who is going to evaluate the evidence for what it is and um, understand that there'll come a time when the public needs to know. Um, And I hope that uh, your work gets completed in enough time um, to uh, make people aware of what's happened so that we can prepare for the 18 election. Well, thanks for this opportunity. It's great to work with you as always. And uh, the people of North Dakota are fortunate to have uh, someone of your integrity and character representing them. Well, you're a doll, but people of Maine are really fortunate to have you <laughs> in Maine. You're, you're, you're an amazing thinker and a great oratory. And, and um, I think, I think one thing Angus brings to all of this, and you can tell already by his answers is an understanding of history. Um, you know, there's an old saying, those who, who don't pay attention to history are doomed to repeat it. I um, have, a, I have a, an amendment to that that's well, really well, good. Okay, let's hear it. it. Mark Twain said, history doesn't always repeat itself, but it usually rhymes. <laughs> Even better. <laughs> Thanks, Angus, for coming in. Really appreciate it. Thank and you. Uh, hopefully at some point we maybe ask you to come back and update us on the progress. Anytime. You bet. Take care. Thanks so much for joining me on The Hot Dish. Make sure you subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Um, You'll also find episodes on my webpage. 